This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, you know, we, we have developed this new section in the show called Stories from the Farm. <laughs> <laughs> but our focus seems to have been on either slithery reptiles or feathered creatures. Do you, have, do you ever have any? <laughs> do, you, do you ever have any stories about um, animals with fur? Besides my goats and my dogs, and um, well, I am fighting a war with the squirrels. Actually, I should say I lost a war with the squirrels oh. this year. So, well, is this okay, like so, a George Orwell situation? The war oh, of the it's, squirrels? It's, it's way worse than that. <laughs> I am. I am so at war with the squirrels. I am ready to eat squirrel. Like I am ready to sh- to shoot to kill and eat because I I really don't believe in killing what you don't eat. But um, except snakes, and I try not to kill them. Um, so there's these fruit trees, right? And they've been growing for a while. Um, they haven't. I'm I'm like actually trying to maintain them. And, you know, I've fertilized, I've pruned, I want fruit off of them because in all the time that they've been growing, nobody's ever gotten any fruit. And not because they don't produce fruit, but because the squirrels get them all. And so I noticed last year when I was looking at the trees that not only is there an issue with squirrels, there's an issue with fruit flies. And so I had no idea. I had to Google and figure this all out. But apparently, so fruit flies, flies will lay their eggs in the growing fruit and then it ruins the fruit. Right. And the only way to really get rid of them is to get rid of the fruit so they don't have a way to keep replicating. Like any fruit that falls, you have to pick it up and burn it. Any fruit that looks to have been infected, you have to burn it. So basically, you could say I'm fighting a two front war. And so this year I was like, okay, I really want to get fruit off these trees. And I did my research and you can find these bags. They're like um, mesh bags that you uh, sort of zip tie around the fruit as it's growing. And it's fine enough that it keeps the the fruit flies off and not being able to lay their eggs. And then the squirrels can't get to it. Well, my trees right now are covered in these things. And every single one of them is a white flag of surrender. Because the squirrels (laughs) chewed through every single freaking one. And so... In my research, I, I, I found this YouTube from this YouTube video from this guy who lives in Australia who's dealing with like wombats and like big, big guys that are not going to have anything to the, the piece of, you know, cloth, uh, whatever that would keep out fruit flies. All they're going to do is just take off of that. So I was like, OK, fine. So I ordered some of this this mesh, this really fine fiberglass cloth, basically. But it just comes in a big cloth and it's really difficult to, you know, have to you have to turn it into something. And so I never did anything with it because I just had it because too much work for me right now. And so in my worth of fruit flies, I went and I, I must have pulled off 400, 500 pieces of fruit and just got rid of them. Because I couldn't, I couldn't bag that much fruit. 
and I couldn't leave fruit exposed that the flies were going to get into. So I threw away and cried over throwing away just hundreds and hundreds of peaches and plums and nectarines and whatever. And then I went and I put these little mesh bags over the, the fruit that remained, maybe 100 pieces total. And it worked great for a while until the fruit was getting close to being ripe. And then the squirrels went and chewed through everything. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go get that fiberglass mesh and at least see if it makes difference. And I had one peach left, one, that for, somehow the squirrels had missed. So I went and fiberglassed that sucker up, this fiberglass cloth. And I laughed my butt off for two days because the squirrels could not chew through it. And on the third day, it was gone, completely gone. Mesh was gone, peach was gone. And that was a squirrel laughing at me saying, yeah, well, let's see how you like these peaches. And they took off with it like a robber, taking a safe home to crack it open later. Oh my God. So now it's on. <laughs> the, what I did discover is that squirrels don't like yellow jackets. And I discovered this because the only two peaches that are still left hanging are the end of a branch that has a yellow jacket nest on it. I left the yellow jacket nest on there at the beginning of the season because I was like, hey, maybe they eat fruit flies. I don't know. So there's two peaches still left hanging there that are looking kind of gnarly because I guess maybe some fruit flies got them. I don't know. The squirrels haven't touched those. I'm not touching them either. I'm going to see how long they last. And if the squirrels are brave enough to mess with the yellow jackets, then I hope they are. <laughs> but next year, I am going to make... Um, make uh, pockets or envelopes out of that mesh. And instead of just zip tying it around the fruit, I'm zip tying that stuff around the branches. And I'm going to sit out there with a pellet gun. <laughs> I'm going to shoot those squirrels. That's oh my. my war. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, one, one thing that we can say about you and, and in this war, it's, it's not, you are, uh, I'm not even going to go there. I was going. Our topic for today is a follow-up <laughs> to episode 211, where we talked about aimlessness. We're going to be talking about aimlessness again. Yes. In episode 211, we discussed a few different ways that aimlessness shows up on the page, and I had provided a few made-up examples of what aimlessness might look like, but. Sometimes it's really difficult for me to accurately explain or to capture an issue when I'm the one creating the problem in order to be able to solve it. So I want to return to the subject of aimless in fiction, aimlessness in fiction today because I have a real-world example of it. Uh-oh. And, <laughs> well, <laughs> as you can probably surmise, this real-world example comes courtesy of Steve's manuscript, and he's being gracious enough allow me to use it. And because he's gracious enough to allow me to pick on him, I want to be fair. And I want to mention that this is older material. It was written before we recorded that Aimlessness podcast. And even if it wasn't, even if it was new, it's also worth noting because this is the type of thing that really does take practice, learning how to spot. And I've seen it from published authors. So even if it had been written after the podcast, he'd still be in pretty big company. So it, I don't want it to seem like uh, we, we focus a lot on Steve's work because that's where I'm getting my ideas from. I don't want to make it sound like I'm just picking on him for the sake of picking on him or that his work is just full of all kinds of mistakes or something. It's just 
it happens to be what's in front of my eyes and, it, and I see these as real world examples and I'm like, oh my God, this is a great example. So we really owe him a huge debt of thanks. And can I, can I just say that over the course of the last several years, there have been other times when you're working on things that we don't talk about. Um, we don't talk about projects that you've been involved in or, uh, you know, speculative things that you might be doing that you don't want to talk about. But you get ideas from that stuff that you're working on as well. And, and we can't, you know, you, and that's why you have to come out and make up examples that are similar to what you were working with, but not not be able to use the exact material. And that's one of the great things about, uh, you know, working together on this Reggie project. Yeah, is that I can actually, I don't have to, you know, try and rewrite stuff to make it my, I just say, hey, Steve's letting me use this. So there've been lots of other stuff, but Steve lets me use his name. So, you know, thank you again, Steve. So, um, okay, let's refresh from episode 211 to remind us what we're talking about. Generally, when we're talking about aimless, what happens, aimlessness, God, I will learn to say that one day. What happens is this. The character's on their way somewhere. They're doing something for some purpose, and the reader doesn't necessarily know what, and we're just along for the ride. And the author does this fantastic job of setting out all the steps of getting from A to Z. We get great description. The detail's just right. We're inside the character's head, and all the plot boxes are ticked except... It's only after laying out all the framework, getting the character through all these steps, the fi- character finally gets there. They've done all this motion, character motion, great. They get to the end of those motions, and then they stop and they begin to consider their options. And their options as it relates to why they were there, the thing, they, the thing that brought them there in the, fir- there in the first place. So um, let's say character A needs to go you know, beat up character B, right? They'll go through the steps of, you know, I did this and I got in my car and I didn't really know where he lived and I went over here and I finally found the place and I got there and I sat outside his house and I stared at the door and I, and I thought about how this should go down. And this is a problem because that's not how it works in real life. Now, I have to reiterate that this this aimlessness thing is completely different. Like when we talk about aimlessness as a completely different thing than if a character goes through all the actions and then after they're over, they explain what it was they'd hoped to accomplish. In these types of situations, the character does the things and then considers what they hope to accomplish. In other words, they didn't think it through at any point before arriving at the doorstep to beat up the guy. So that's this runs us into trouble because when we have a character jump through all these steps to get somewhere or do something, and they don't think about it at all until they get to the end, it makes it look like the character is either really, impo- really impulsive or really stupid. Because instinctually, we know that is not how real life works. In real life, Most people, at the very least, would begin thinking through the consequences and their options and how this could all go down on the way to go beat up the guy. But more than likely, something would have triggered the anger and they would have been thinking about their rage and be really mad and wondering how they could get back at the guy. And finally, they decide to go beat him up. And we would have gotten all of that before they even got in the car to go 
beat the guy up, right? And that's because even in these situations when we're not thinking logically, even when we're running on full emotion and our thoughts are just ping-ponging around our heads, we're still reacting to emotion and to thought. It's not do this thing and then think about it. This is cause and effect, right? We've talked about this before. When we violate cause and effect, we end up with characters who come across as impulsive, not very smart. In some cases, it can even make a likable character seem unlikable. And decisions that are meant to be logical and are meant to have meaning within the overarching plot, they become happenstance. And these scenes feel unsatisfying. And we might not always be able to pinpoint why they're unsatisfying, but our guts know something is not right. So even if the reader doesn't know what specifically it is that's bothering them, something's going to bother them about that scene. So now let's look at our caught in the wild example. And this is character aimlessness, but there's a lot more to this. So we're going to start on character aimlessness. We're going to take a few detours and come back to it. And this is from the first page of chapter five. Now, in the first four paragraphs of this chapter, the main character is starting his day. He goes through a series of routine tasks like getting coffee, making breakfast, and then he gets in his Jeep to drive to his destination. Now, these first four paragraphs are literally going through the motions. It's that type of narrative that tells us what the character was doing. I got breakfast. I did this. I did that. Blah, blah, blah. And that in itself is not bad. This is a very light and breezy story. And those types of routine details, they don't feel jarringly out of place. And one thing that this opening gets very right, and I think that Steve probably was clearly conscious about doing, is making sure that these mundane details relating to food and coffee were more than just a list of only I did this and I did that, because there's also some cheeky humor, there's some inner dialogue that's unique to the character. So if what happened next fell in line with those first four paragraphs, they might actually work. I might, I'd probably still suggest paring some of it down, but those paragraphs in and of themselves, they're not wrong. That's my point. And it's really rare for any paragraph or any segment to be quote unquote wrong in isolation, just in and of itself. It's all about the context. Each sentence, each paragraph, they're all making up part of the whole. The overall tone, the author's voice, the story itself, where those words sit as part in relation to each other, that's all part of what determines whether something works or not. That's why it's so hard to have just hard and fast rules. Right. So the issue here with this piece is that these opening paragraphs that are just sort of this routine, everyday kind of mundane stuff, they lead to the character getting his vehicle and driving to where he needs to be and is followed by this. I arrived early, planning to catch Martinez before the shop opened. So clearly he planned to be here to catch the guy before the guy was in the store, right? The Mercedes I'd seen on my last visit was the only car and the otherwise empty lot. I parked next to it and climbed out of the Jeep and stretched. I thought through my approach 
and how I could help Martinez understand that cooperating with me was the quickest way of getting Mr. Rudd off his back. Now, this aspect of cooperation and getting Mr. Rudd off his back, this is the not, not the first time Reggie has thought of that. He's thought of it before. That's what prompted him to make this visit. But he's only just now thinking through his approach and how he could help Martinez understand it. And that has nothing to do with whether he gets there early or whatever. This is the whole point of him visiting the guy, right? So if you've been listening to this show long enough, then you've already caught this. You've figured it out. I don't have to explain it. You know where I'm going with it. But I have to explain it anyway, because that's what I do. So I'm going to crib from the notes that I laid down in the document when I hit that spot. And what I said, more or less, is... This is a perfect example of what we discussed on the episode about aimlessness. This character goes through a whole series of daily routine motions. We get them in minute detail, all the way down to him putting his dishes in the sink. And yet, it's only after he gets to where he's going that he starts thinking about how he's going to accomplish his goal. In reality, he would have had to be thinking about this while going through his morning routine. At the very least, he'd be thinking this through on the drive there. Ideally, he'd also be recapping for the reader what he'd come up with last night, because it was last night that he realized he needed to go do this, and I can't think of anyone who would have gone from the office, back home, gotten into bed, and gotten up, and gotten dressed, and made this drive without even thinking about it once until he got there. Now, clearly, my notes aren't always as sweet and hand-holding as the impression I give on these episodes. Uh, I can attest to that. (laughs) (laughs) Now... Like I said, those opening paragraphs, they get a few details really, really right. We're inside the character's head, so we get inner dialogue, character insight, and that keeps the scene from turning into a dry laundry list of I did this and I did that, whatever. And we also have great character in motion. But, and here's where we diverge for a bit, neither of those two key elements are enough to save the scene. And I want to talk about that. And why it is that doing the quote-unquote right things can still be wrong for quote-unquote wrong reasons for the scene. So first, I want to touch on inner, inner dialogue and why inner dialogue can in and of itself make or break a scene. So this story is a light, breezy mystery. But light and breezy doesn't mean that it's without substance. We have theft, murder, betrayal, a ticking clock. In the preceding scene... The protagonist has hit a roadblock, and he's finally closed out the night by settling on a course of action for tomorrow. Now, here we are in tomorrow. And the chapter opens with four paragraphs with the character going through his morning routine. We hear about the weather. We watch the character make coffee, eat breakfast, wash his dishes, and he finally gets in the car, and he has the location he decided on last night. And mixed in with all these daily routines, we get these routine motions. We get plenty of inner dialogue. And this is great. Or it would have been if this inner dialogue had in some way kept us anchored to the plot or gave us insight into the character or any form of insight into any form of personal or greater conflict. But instead, what we're getting is the character's inner dialogue is reflecting entirely on the weather, the food and the motions he's going through. And what this does is it leaves this scene and the character in it completely detached from the plot, from the overall conflict, and from character drama. 
It's like this self-contained little segment all about food and weather. It's like the character has temporary amnesia. Everything that happened early in the story, everything he figured out last night, it, it never happened. It, it never crosses his mind. It doesn't even cross his mind what he plans to do in response to what he figured out last night. He's like this complete blank cipher joking about breakfast and weather and washing his dishes and pouring himself some cereal until he finally gets to where he's going. And even the quips about the food, which are what helped keep the tone light, they're not really giving us a particular insight into him. It's just funniness, sort of. But it's not unique, unique, like where you'd say, oh my God, that kind of funny just makes the scene and, and makes all this other stuff doesn't even matter. And you do see that in, in writing. Sometimes stuff is so funny that and so unique that... You, Anything that might have not worked in the scene suddenly works, right? This wasn't that type of situation. So what we end up with are these paragraphs that could be completely cut and we wouldn't use a single thing. And that is not because of the routine details. It's because of the inner dialogue. So inner dialogue for the sake of inner dialogue is not a solution. So inner dialogue is the connection between what's happening and who it's happening to. It's what guides us into how we feel about what the character's experiencing. Because that's what's telling the inner dialogue, the character's reaction to what he's experiencing is telling us how he feels about it. It's telling us why it matters to him. And it's putting meaning to motive and to everything that the character says and does. So even knowing those things, it can't save us from the mundane if the content of that inner dialogue is focusing on the mundane, it's what the character is thinking and reflecting on is what saves us, right? So for inner dialogue to be effective, it has to directly to connect to or offer new and added insight. And that new or added is really important, important. And we talked about that a little bit in the last episode. I'm going to try and raise that issue more because new and added means you're not just repeating the same thing over, right? So for inner, for inner dialogue to be effective, it has to directly connect to or offer new or added insight into at least one of the three key story components, which are character, conflict, and plot. So you've got to ask yourself, is what my character thinking right now, one, does it reveal or deepen their character or somebody else's character, any character? Does it add to, resolve, relate to their personal or greater or the greater story conflict? Or does it move the plot forward? If the answer isn't yes to at least one of those key components, then not only is your inner dialogue filler, it's actually working against you. It's worse than no inner dialogue. Because in fiction, character and story are everything that matters. That is why we are reading. We are the reader, and we are reading because you have convinced us that what's on the page matters, and it is all related to character and story. That is the essence of everything substantial. It's what matters to me as a reader. This is substance. And so when your character ignores substance to focus on the mundane, that character is going to feel shallow, empty, weak, boring, and possibly 
depending on what they happen to be ignoring in the moment, stupid. With that in mind, let's. I want to look at the foundational concept of character in motion and why it itself can't, in and of itself, save your scene. So this chapter, it opens with these paragraphs of a character going through his morning routine. We hear about the weather. We watch the character make coffee, eat breakfast, wash his dishes, and finally he gets in the car and he heads to the location he decided on last night. This scene is full of character in motion. The character isn't sitting in one place, thinking and navel-gazing. He's doing stuff. But just doing stuff isn't enough. What the character is doing matters. So when it comes to character in motion, we essentially have two types of doing stuff. We have boring stuff and interesting stuff. So boring stuff is the mundane, repetitive daily activity, getting a character from here to there, sightseeing, taking a walk to think things out, eating, sleeping, bathing, dressing, driving, even hobbies and outdoor activities can all be examples of boring motion. Interesting motion is motion that directly connects us to one of the three story components. And again, those are character, conflict, and plot. So interesting motion is engaging. It's engaging just because you're watching the character do this stuff that fascinates you. And when we're watching a character doing motions that are interesting, it feels like something is happening. The plot is moving forward. The story is coming together. So if the character's motions can stand alone, or if they can stand with like the, the sparest of guidance from commentary or inner dialogue, and they stand alone or with just a little bit of commentary, whatever they reveal or deepen character. They add to, they resolve or relate to personal or story conflict. If they can move the plot forward, then just by default, that motion is interesting. But if the character's motion doesn't stand alone, or if it needs, if it needs lots of narrative guidance or inner dialogue in order to be able to reveal or deepen character in order to add or resolve or relate to conflict or move the plot forward, then that motion is by default boring. So if you spend too much time with a character doing boring things, even if there's tons of motion involved in it, it's not going to feel like anything in the story is actually happening. And when it feels like nothing in the story is actually happening, you have filler. And filler is where your readers start zoning out or skipping forward. So with that in mind, you might think that the goal is to eliminate as much boring motion as possible. Surprise, it's not. It is almost impossible to make a story work without the mundane. You need that boring stuff because that's what connects things. If you remove too much of it, your story is just going to jerk from place to place. There's going to be no room to breathe. Your characters are going to feel not human. I don't know what they're going to feel like, but not like real life people. So you have to include boring motion. And depending on your genre or the tone of your story, you might have to include a lot of boring motion. So your goal isn't to eliminate boring motion, it's transform it. Boring motion is not bad, but you have to know what it is to know how to work with it. So you transform boring motion into something interesting by keeping it short enough or infrequent enough that it doesn't have time to consciously register as having happened, like you're just moving along and getting to the next thing, or you use those mundane motions as a vehicle like they are, they are not the point of the scene. They are a transport method in the scene to reveal or deepen character or to add or resolve or relate to the conflict or to move the plot forward. Keeping them mundane, short or infrequent, that's 
pretty self-explanatory. I'm not going to explain that here. Using the mundane as a vehicle, that means finding a way to take more of what the character's doing and turn it into, I guess you could say, you, you, you make more of what the character is doing as something more. You're not just recounting things for the sake of telling what the character did. It means finding a way to make what the character did matter. So we, we started this discussion on the subject of aimlessness, and I want to tie it back together to inner dialogue and character emotion in two ways. Because inner dialogue and character emotion, they are inseparable from this discussion. You, you cannot solve an issue of aimlessness without understanding how they all tie together. First, I want to reiterate that when it comes to aimlessness, what we're trying to avoid is a scenario in which the character is on their way somewhere for some specific thing, and they go through all these motions, a series of motions leading up to them getting to that place. But it's only once they get there that they start to think about what it is they intended to do while they were there. So all those motions that precede that, that's, that's where you should be talking about. You should be using those motions as the vehicle to talk about what the character's doing and thinking. We don't have motion just for the sake of motion unless the motion is interesting because it relates directly to the plot and it's showing us directly some new aspect about the conflict and so on and so forth. So when a series of motions leading up to a character getting wherever they're getting are boring, they are filler. They're pretty easy to spot. When the series of motions leading up to the character getting there are interesting, that can disguise your aimlessness problem. Those are the ones you really have to be careful about because they don't jump out at you. But aimlessness is aimlessness. It's a problem either way. So second, I want to show you how it might be possible to use mundane detail as a vehicle. And this is not a, re a rewrite of this scene. I didn't have time to do that. So all I had time for was to just throw a, a rough sketch together, basically choreography, if you will, sort of as an example of what it could look like if someone wanted to solve the issue of boring motion, like they needed to sort of use movement beats and they didn't have any really interesting stuff to do with it. They just wanted to show the, as the character was going through his day to solve that issue of the boring motion and aimlessness by meshing mundane motion together with inner dialogue. So here's a, a sketch of what it could possibly look like. Saturday morning arrived cloud covered and sticky with humidity, an apt metaphor for what my brain felt like as I stood in the kitchen halfway between <laughs> counter and sink with an empty coffee pot in hand. My mind was racing. The rest of me was having a hard time trying to keep up. Strategy that had seemed so clear last night wasn't anymore. I'd cut off tangent threads, narrowed all the options down into three possibilities, but now that I'd showered and was fully awake, I realized I had a problem. My two best options ran in complete opposite directions. Going after one meant losing all chance of going after the other, and neither was solid enough to guarantee getting what I wanted. I stared at the coffee pot. My brain diverted enough focus to move me to the sink to fill it. I got water into the coffee maker and got that thing running. 
my mind kept churning. Hunting down and following Character X had seemed like the obvious way to get the thing, but time was at a premium and surveillance had the potential to eat it all. I grabbed a bowl, filled it with cereal, poured milk, sat. Option two followed like water circling a drain. The building where I saw the exchange go down held answers, and I was in a position to force the bricks to give up those secrets. Well, sort of. There'd be a struggle because of X, Y, Z. I ate, jaw grinding, through spoonful after spoonful while the mental movie of how that would go down played its way beginning to end, adjusted a few details and started over. I watched a dozen variations. At some point, coffee went from pot to mug. I sipped and debated. ABC was my third possibility, but examining it in the cold light of day, I knew that I had been sleep, de- that had been sleep de- deprivation talking. There's no way I'd pull that off this week, much less this month. I poured another round of coffee. By the time the mug was empty, I had my answer, and my body finally caught up to speed. I dumped the dishes in the sink, grabbed my keys, and headed out into the fickle November weather. Or we could just as easily say, I moved through my morning routine on autopilot, coffee, breakfast, dishes, while my mind kept returning to the options from the night before. What makes a scene filled with boring detail work is when that scene isn't about what the character's actually doing. It's about what the character's thinking and feeling. And for that to work, the character has to think or feel about something connected to the key story components, character, plot, conflict. So if the inner dialogue's only connecting to the boring motion, then the whole thing's going to remain disconnected from the story as a whole. And that's all I got. That was that was a fantastic example, and I could see the dog liked it too because he started out a little, a little barky, and then as you got into your version of it, he calmed right down. I was like snapping my fingers. Be quiet! Be quiet! <laughs> no, that was really good, and I love this whole technique of, of just adding because of X Y Z. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just—I don't know what this story is. I'm just meshing yeah. these details together. No, it's fantastic. And, and and as you were describing this, I was I was thinking in my own mind how to plug in, you know, sort of where I thought you were going to go with this. And I would not have put in that level of detail, but, and I, not so much detail, that level of thought about the problem, um, inner dialogue about the problem, but the way that you did it just really drew me in as someone who was listening to it. And I'm just, I was like leaning forward, wanting to hear more. So, This isn't exactly, exactly the point of this podcast, but it kind of relates. As I'm, and we may cut it off, but as I'm going through the document, the manuscript, I notice him come back, Reggie comes back and he thinks about things, but his thoughts are very vague and they don't actually nail anything down and they don't move us in a clear direction. And so every time he thinks about these things again, it starts to feel repetitive. And the notes that I find myself, I I don't know that I've actually put it in there yet because I want to get further into the story before I comment on it, but I'm feeling like the story would be much better served if he thought less and thought deeper. And that's not Hmm. to say that he's not thinking about it along the way, but we're just not telling the reader about it. So that by the time he finally does lay it out for the reader, or each time he lays it out for the reader, because it's obviously it's going to change as new information comes in and and plot points shift and change, it's very concrete. There's this, and if that happened, da-da-da-da. And there's this, and if that happened, da-da-da. And I'm conflicted because this. And that keeps us really close up inside the character's head, and it allows us to 
tell exactly how much we want to tell the reader and nothing more. Because we can't get mad about not being shown something that would have solved the mystery down the road if the character himself didn't know it. You run into a problem if the character sees something and never acknowledges it or acknowledges it and just brushes it off because the author's afraid it's going to drop too many clues along the way. So in some of these instances, Reggie's thinking about stuff, but he's he's brushing things off. He's not thinking deeply about them. And it leaves those situations feeling shortchanged and cheated and then feeling repetitive. Mm-hmm. But because I haven't been focusing on that specifically in my first run through it, I haven't commented on those. It's more like I'm holding them back in my head so that as I go back and I look at those spots later, I'll be able to tell if, oh, maybe they actually did work the way they did, they were or not. But just as a general rule, I find that uh, instances of showing the character thinking stuff through are better served by showing it less and showing it deeper. Okay. That's, that seems like good advice. I'm certainly the way that you sketched out that scene was very compelling. All right. So that is it for this week's show on aimlessness. We will not be aimless at the end because we're a little late of time. Uh, or a little, we're running a little bit late. So we will be, thanks, thanks for listening, and we will be back in your ear again next Tuesday. See you guys next week.